We are once again in Romans today, Romans chapter 6, and so I want to invite everyone to open up your Bible to Romans 6. If you do not have a Bible, then you should be able to find a black one. It looks like this under a chair near you will be on page 942 in, uh, in the black Bibles. You're going to find it very helpful to have uh, a Bible open in front of you for you to follow along. The, um, you know, we're, we're in this series that's, it's really, it's, uh, I guess, a medium-length series, eight sermons total. We just started it one sermon ago, uh, looking at the very end of Romans 5 through the end of Romans 8, and many pastors and theologians agree that Romans 5, 6, 7, 8 are among the, the greatest and most glorious uh, chapters in the whole New Testament, that many, many consider the book of Romans to be the heart of the Apostle Paul's Theology, and they consider these chapters to be the heart of the book of Romans. And so just to remind you of an outline, okay, of this first half of the book of Romans. The book of Romans has 16 chapters, so the first half, chapters 1 to 8. Chapters 1 to 5 really explain what God has accomplished for us in the gospel. What he's accomplished for us in the gospel, and a great, or I think a great, helpful summary verse for Romans 1 to 5 is Romans 5, verse 20, if we can bring that up. Romans 5, verse 20 says, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That a big part of Romans 5, if you want to you know, boil it down to a nutshell, that Romans 1 to 5 is that we, that all of us, every person in this room, we are all born in Adam. He is our federal head. He is our representative. And because of his failure in the garden, we inherited a sin nature from him, which is why we fell in our obedience to the God who made us and who takes care of us every day, that, that, that we are all sinners, guilty before the God who made us, who takes care of us. And Romans 1 to 5 makes that clear, but yet it also communicates to us what God has done for us in the gospel. That, as verse 20 says, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. Quite woodenly, literally, it says, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And so when you think about what the good news of the gospel is, that it says that if you think about a scale, a balance, and if our sin is here, and God's grace is on this side, God's grace always abounds. No matter how much sin increases, no matter how much sin abounds, no matter how much we see the the reality and the depth and the ugliness of our sin, that God's grace always superabounds. And so the scales go like this. That God's grace is always more than enough. It's always amazing. It's It's always abounding. That God's grace always trumps sin. And the Apostle Paul preaches this so well in chapters 1 to 5. And then he begins to ask this all-important question that actually come, shows up a couple of times in Romans 6. And we see this question first asked in Romans 6, 1. So we can bring that up. What shall we say then? What shall we say then in response to this amazing grace, this superabounding grace? What shall we say then? Are we to continue? Are we, those of us who are in Christ now, you know, we're all born into Adam, but those who are Christians are now in Christ because of their faith in Christ. Are we, those of us who are now in Christ, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, okay, if God's grace is always incredible, it always trumps our sin, does that mean then that we are free to just live however we want to live 
and we ask for forgiveness, and that's what God does. I mean, that's God's job, right? To just to forgive us. And what the Apostle Paul says is by no means. Absolutely not. That's absurd. That's crazy. See, Romans 1 to 5 describe for us what God has done for us in the gospel. And then Romans 6 to 8 describe for us what God will do in us through the gospel. See, Romans 6 to 8, I mean, these are incredibly challenging passages. Incredibly challenging, but they're incredibly challenging in part because they're incredibly powerful. Romans 6 to 8, you'll see this, it tells us really that, that the gospel is really dynamite. It's really dynamite that can produce real, meaningful, deep changes in our lives. In our lives, in our actual character and behavior. That for those who are truly Christians, who have really you know, tasted and experienced this abounding grace of the gospel by faith in Jesus... That as Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that we too might walk in newness of life. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, who doesn't want that? <laughs> I mean, who, who will not raise their hand and say, I would like to live in newness of life. I'd like to walk in newness of life. We all want that. In so many ways, I think Paul essentially says here in Romans 6 to 8, well, come and get it. Come and get it. A friend of mine um, uh, was here uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, I mean, of course, he was here. He's a member of the church. But he was here a couple weeks ago, and I preached the first sermon in Romans. And, uh, and I asked him, hey, give me some thoughts on this. How, I mean, what do you think about the sermon? And he said, well, Richard, I think you preached it well. But I was just, you know, I wish you would connect it to a story. I wish you would connect Romans 6 to a story. See, I think he's missing the gospel of Luke. Still, wish you would connect it to a story. And I thought about that, and I think you know, okay, that's a good point. I tried to, I, I implied this, but now I want to be explicit with it. If you want a, you want a story to connect Romans six to, are you ready? I'll give you a story. It's your story. If you want to connect Romans six to real life, you want to make it come alive, you connect it to your story. Let me connect it to my story. As we're looking at Romans 6, let's look at this and see, what does this say about me? You let this passage wrestle with you. You don't wrestle with it. Let it wrestle with you. Let it wrestle with your mind. As you try to wrap your mind around what it actually says. And let it grip and stir your heart. See, friends, so many of us, so many of us, not just you, but me too, so many of us who are followers of Jesus, we, we never think of it this way, but I think it's so true. We have such low expectations, such low ambitions for what the Christian life is really, can really be. Such low expectations, such low goals. For walking in newness of life and what it can really be. So let's look at Romans 6 together. And we'll start reading in verse 1, although our passage is going to begin in verse 5. But I just want to keep reminding us a little bit of where we have been. So Romans 6, starting in verse 1. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we're going to look at this passage under the following three headings. And the following three headings come from three verbs that we see in this passage. And they really lay out a nice, a nice outline for us. And we're going to walk through the passage verse by verse. But the three, the three words, the three headings are know, consider, and present. Know, consider, and present. So know. The word know shows up several times in the early verses of Romans 6. We see it in verse 2, verse 6. In verse 9, and so the Apostle Paul is telling us that if we're going to live in newness of life, it's very important that we know something. Well, what are we to know? We are to know that if we are true Christians, then by God's grace through faith, we have been united with Jesus. Theologians refer to this as our union with Christ. Look with me at verse 5. For if, we, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The, the Greek word translated united is a botanical or horticultural term that literally means grown together or grafted in. So it's a word picture of a branch bound to another branch as they are grafted together. So this is the image that Paul uses to illustrate our union with Jesus. Now, it can be so hard to wrap our minds around this idea of our union with Christ, but the Apostle Paul speaks about it over and over and over again in this chapter. He speaks about it over and over again in all of his letters. And so it can be challenging to wrap our minds around it, but in so many ways it means everything for really walking in newness of life. You see, Paul says that being united to Jesus means that... that Christians are united to Jesus in two ways. We're united to Jesus in his death, and we're united to Jesus in his resurrection to new life. See, that says something. See, his death says something about our past, about our old life, about what has already happened. 
And his resurrection to new life says something important about life in the present and on into the future. Well, what does this union with Christ really mean for us? Look, look at verse 6. This is a big verse, a key verse. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now think about that for a minute. That's an important verse. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey today, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, never thought about following Christ, or been a Christian for a long time, you look at that last phrase. That we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you know what that feels like. I know you do, because I do. And who doesn't want to be free? Who doesn't want to be free from those sins? Who doesn't want to be free from those things that we hate doing, we hate thinking, we hate saying? Who doesn't want to be free from those sins? Those ways that we hurt the people closest to us, who we're supposed to care about and love the most. Who doesn't want to be free from that? We all do. If you notice, what Paul says is that in order to get there, there's in order that, in order that, we have to understand this union with Christ. In these two phrases, our old self was crucified, and then this body of sin brought to nothing, in order that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So there's a, bit, there's a, there's a chain here, a logical chain. And so let's try to understand these two phrases, our old self and body of sin, because they do not mean the same things. And we can make a mistake by thinking Paul's just doing double talk, you're just repeating himself. I repeat myself a lot, but, but he, that's not what he's doing here. These are two different things. So, our old self. Our old self does not refer, refer to part of us. Rather, it refers to the whole of us. It refers to our old life before God saved and forgave us through faith in Jesus. Paul says that we must know. We must know with certainty that our old life is done. Our old self, our old life, the old man, the old woman, the old us, it's done. We've died to it. This is why Paul says it was crucified. Not being crucified, it was crucified. That's why Romans 6.4 says that it was buried. It, it was, it's gone. To never be seen ever again. See, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you are no longer the person you once were. The, the moment you trusted in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, the old you died, was buried, and is gone. And Paul says we've got to start here. If you want to walk in newness of life, you've got to start here. Well, why? I mean, looking at the verse. We know that our old self was crucified, it's dead, it's buried, it's gone with Jesus in order that, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Well, what does the body of sin mean? What does that phrase mean? Here's what I think it means. It's describing the body, the life, controlled by sin. It's referring to a person dominated and enslaved to sin. But look at what Paul says about the body of sin or this life controlled by sin. For the Christian who knows that their old life is gone, dead, buried, gone, then this body of sin, this life 
that's controlled by sin's domineering uh, authority and power has been brought to nothing. Now, I know many of you don't believe that right now, but just stay with me, okay? It's been brought to nothing. It's been abolished. It's been rendered powerless. So, you see, if you're a true follower of Jesus today, then your old self was enslaved to sin. But your old self is now dead and buried and gone, and so is sin's domineering power and authority over you. Okay, now I mentioned I repeat myself a lot, so let's do it one more time. Let's put it all together. Paul says whenever you come to faith in Jesus, that we're united to Jesus in such a way that we share in both Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, it's mind-blowing, but he says we've got to understand this. That Jesus' death means our old self, our old life, died with Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's buried. It's gone. We've now been raised with Jesus to walk in newness of life. And in case you haven't understood him, he summarizes again in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, this doesn't mean that once you become a Christian, you never sin again. You don't even stop sinning when you become a pastor. How about that? And we know that. We know that firsthand. In the weeks to come, we'll get to Romans 7, and the Apostle Paul will talk about that. But see, no, no, one, no one's talking crazy up here yet. No one's talking about perfectionism. We're not talking about that. We're talking about how the moment you become a Christian, you're no longer under the tyrannical, domineering, and enslaving authority and rule of sin. That's what we mean. That's what Paul means. He means, yeah, you might sin. You will still sin, but you don't have to. Do you believe that? Now, he's not saying that sin has no more power. Sin's still very powerful. But doesn't have any more authority. It still has incredible power to, to maim us, even after we become Christians, but no more authority over us. To help try to differentiate between the two, there's a quote uh, that brilliant thinker, uh, British thinker G.K. Chesterton once said when he was discussing this topic with a friend in a restaurant. He said, if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant right now, there's no denying he would have great power here. I mean, he's a rhinoceros. But I should be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. Do you see the difference? See, sin is still very powerful and Christians can still sin in big, messy ways. Big, messy ways. But the point is that now we do not have to anymore. Our union with Jesus has disarmed sin. It's now a toothless monster that can no longer dictate to us. Paul says that we, if we're truly in Christ, have died to it and it can be dead to us. You know why? Because now there's a new and more powerful authority at work in your life right now if you're in Christ. And Paul describes this in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, He, that's God the Father, has delivered us from the domain. That's the authority, that's the kingdom, that's the rule of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
No, but do you believe that? Do you believe that? I mean, how can you be certain of this? How can we? Yeah, Paul says it, but how can we be certain of this? Well, Paul's not finished. He says the answer of how we can be sure of this is found in our union with Christ. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So how can we be certain that this is true? How can we be certain that if we're in Christ, that we are set free from sin's enslaving, tyrannical, domineering authority in our lives today? How can we be certain? It's our union with Jesus. But, but why? How do I know that? What, what difference does that make? Think with me for a minute. What authority, what claim does death and sin have over Jesus today? I mean, he, he's already died. He's already risen from the grave. He's now at God the Father's right hand. And so what authority, what claim does death and sin have over Jesus today? None whatsoever. Jesus died on the cross because he took our sin upon himself. But his resurrection demonstrates he's defeated both sin and death once for all. And what Paul says, the reason why union with Christ is the key to this is because we share in his death and his resurrection. So he says over and over again that we know these things. He's not even telling us to know them. He says, you know these things. That we know these things. And knowing these things is where it begins. But there's more. So the second heading, and the other headings are shorter than the first heading. The second heading is the word consider. And we see the word consider in Romans 6 verse 11. Romans 6, verse 11 is a special verse, at least in in the letter of Romans. You may not know this, but Romans 6, 11 is about 147 verses into Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's the very first time that he gives a command in the letter. See, I've already told you that Romans 1 to 5 is about what God has done for us in the gospel. There's no command, no exhortation to do anything up until now. And now in verse 11, Paul says, do something. You know what Paul says, do? He says, consider what I've been saying. (laughs) I want you to really think about this. I want you to really consider it. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that Greek word consider means to reckon. It means to reckon or, or to count. And in classical Greek, it has two main meanings. The first meaning is a bookkeeping term. A bookkeeping term used in commercial dealings to evaluate an object's worth. Or to evaluate, measure a project's gains and losses. What's really there? What's it really worth? What's real about it? It's a bookkeeping term. It's also a philosophical term. It's a philosophical term... In the sense of an objective, non-emotional reasoning. It's, it's the Greek word logizomai. Logizomai. You see it. If you look at the, the word, we preserve some of its real meaning in our English words logic and logical. 
Paul says, I want you to really think about everything I've been saying. And I want you to connect the dots. Because this is real. You may not believe it because it's too incredible to believe, but this is real. Listen to how pastor commentator James Boyce puts it. The common ground in these two uses of the word is that legizomai has to do with reality. With things as they truly are. In other words, it has nothing to do with wishful thinking. Nor is it an activity that makes something come to pass or happen. It's an acknowledgement of or acting upon something that has already, is already true or has already happened. See, Paul says if you want to walk in newness of life, if you want to live free from sin's domineering, enslaving authority, you must know your union with Jesus. And you also must reckon, count it, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Theologian John Stott uses the illustration of thinking of your life in terms of two volumes. The first volume is your old self. The first volume is who you were before you became a Christian. Who you were before God forgave you and saved you through your faith in Jesus. He says that first volume, if you're in Christ, has long since closed. And you are now living in volume two. You're now living in volume two, and so it's inconceivable. It's illogical that you would ever go back and reopen volume one. He goes on to say, a Christian should no more think of going back to the old life than an adult to his childhood. Or a discharged prisoner to his prison cell. But why does he say that we have to actively consider this? Why does he say we have to actively, actively reckon it or, or count it? Well, it's, it's just like any other incredible right or privilege. You can have that right. You can have that privilege. Have those resources. And yet it means nothing to you at all unless you draw on it. Unless you draw from it. I mean, maybe think of it this way. What if... What if you discovered that you had a, a rich, rich old uncle and uh, he decided to put, give you a trust fund in your name of $100 million? Now, for most of us, that's life-changing money. For some of you, maybe not a big deal. But for most of us, $100 million, that's a big deal, right? Have that trust fund. It, it, it's yours. But unless you draw on the trust fund... It will not change your actual financial situation. See, the trust fund should mean the end of your financial troubles forever. Life-changing money. No more debt. Buy that new house. Buy the new car. But it will not do anything for you unless it's used. So you have to use it. You have to reckon it. You have to count it. And I think Paul's point here is that he knows us very well. He knows that we go through life, so many of us as spiritual beggars... Acting as if we don't have access to the riches of Jesus' resurrection power to fight against sin and walk in newness of life. But we do have the power to fight against sin's rule and reign over us. We do have that. And so Paul says in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You see, if you're in Christ, he said things are different now. The old you had no choice but to let sin reign and rule over your life. 
But the old life, the old self is dead and volume one is closed. And you are now someone free from sin slavery. You're now free to fight against sin. And so what Paul is saying here is to simply be who you are. Just be who you are. We know who we are. So now consider it and be who you are. I've used this illustration before. Um, and uh, maybe it's the product of having some little kids. Uh, maybe it's the product of being a young pastor. But it comes from The Lion King. And if you remember the Disney movie, The Lion King, uh, Simba, the little lion prince, uh, runs away from home after his father, Mufasa, the king, is murdered. And in doing so, Simba, the little prince, tries to run away from his true identity. He doesn't want any part of that old life. But he tries to run away. And he doesn't tell anybody that he's supposed to be the next Lion King. And he grows up. And then one night, his father visits him in a dream. And the father says to him, You are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. And that's a defining moment for him. And I think in many ways, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Remember, Christian, who you are. You're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Be who you are. It's not pull up your bootstraps, get ready to go do this. It's be who you are. Stop being who you're not, who you once were. That's not who you are anymore. Be who you are now. Well, what what does it mean? Well, the the third word is present. Look with me at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, Paul says, if we're in Christ, guess what? We have a choice. He says, we have a choice. We can present ourselves, offer ourselves, give ourselves over to sin. See, we have to do that because now sin has no more authority over us, so we've got to offer ourselves up to it. He says, you can do that. You can offer yourself up to sin to be used as a tool, as an instrument of sin for unrighteousness, or we can give ourselves, offer ourselves fully to God to be used by Him. And the whole point is, well, be who you are. If you're in Christ, then you have been brought from death to life by God's grace through His Son, Jesus. So present yourself, give yourself fully to God to be used by Him as an instrument for righteousness. Now, well, I'm not going back to that church. That pastor, he's telling me, I just need to be better. I just need to be holy. Telling you to be who you are. See, this is not legalism. This is living in light of God's abundant, abounding grace that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve. I mean, this has nothing to do with earning anything. It's not living a good life to earn God's favor and blessing. This is knowing and considering that through Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, you already have God's favor and blessing. And so this is just realizing who you are and living that way. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You see, we're talking about grace. 
This is what real grace does. This is, it, it changes us. It, it fuels us to walk in newness of life. See, no one's talking about legalism. No one's talking about perfectionism. And in fact, if you're not a Christian, you're here today. I'm so glad you're here. I mean that. You probably won't do this, but I would love to meet you after the service. I'll be right up here. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to thank you for coming and being here with us. If you're not a Christian, then I'm, I'm not telling you to fight your sin. I'm not telling you to fight your sin. Because if you're honest, you know that's not going to work. You've tried to stop doing those things. You've tried to be better. But you, it's not working. See, that's just the point, though. It doesn't work. You don't need to try harder to be better. You need to realize that you need grace. The invitation to you is come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Put your trust to him. He will forgive you. He'll change you. But that's where it starts. You've got to come to him. You've got to be united to Christ before you can even begin this process we're talking about. But if you're a Christian, because you're under grace, live like it. Live like it. We're talking, no, we're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about perfectionism. We are talking about fighting sin. We are talking about not tolerating it any longer. We are talking about not settling for it. You see, because you no longer have to. It's not who you are in Christ. Many of us don't believe this, but practically it looks like telling yourself, you know what, I don't have to do that. That's not who I am. I don't have to watch this, click this, say this, drink this, do this. I don't have to do this. Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, when a non-Christian sins, they're acting in accord with their identity, with who they are. Why wouldn't they sin? But when someone is united to Christ, everything changes because who they are changes. There's a new me. When a Christian sins, they're acting against their identity. Why would they sin? Therefore, if I sin, when I sin, it's because I do not realize who I am. I have forgotten what has been done for me in Christ. You see, friends, so many of us, I mean, I know there are some of us, okay, who are, we're not all in the same place. I know this. There are some of us I know who are just beaten down with habitual sin. And, and there's, the, there's the possibility, if you don't really know me and know my heart, to think, oh, he is just heaping, you know, law upon law. He's just, he's just preaching legalism today. But if you know me, you know that's not what I'm preaching at all. Even though I've told you over and over again, I'm not talking about that. But there are so many of us who, honestly, we're not, we're, it's not that we're just eaten alive or beaten down by habitual, besetting sins. It's just that our ambition for our vision of what the Christian life is, is honestly just so poor and putrid and puny. We just settle. We just settle. You know, we're just getting started in this series. So it's okay. 
if you're frustrated at me, but it's not okay not to come back. It's, it's okay to have more questions than you have answers, but we're just getting started. You've got to walk through this. Let me, let me end with telling you a story, reading to you a story, illustrations. It's a long one, but I will end with this. And it's uh, from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. And it's an illustration uh, that describes the, the, the possibility, the, the, the potential of this union with Christ. And he uses the, the analogy of a Christian, a true follower of Jesus, being a living house. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild it. At first, you can understand what he's doing. Getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. And does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the answer is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's got different expectations. He's got a different vision for your life than what you do. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such energy, joy, wisdom, and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God, though of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we're in for. Nothing less, he meant what he said. So do you want Romans 6 to be connected to a story? I've got a story for you. How about your story? How about my story? I know you've got questions. We'll be here next week. We'll keep answering them. Let's pray. Father, we've already confessed together. Through Christ's death, our old selves are crucified, put to death, and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us but that instead we may dedicate ourselves as an offering of gratitude to him. Father, please, help our unbelief. Help those of us who are doubting whether this is really true. Sure, we want it. We want newness of life. Sure, we want to be free from sin's enslaving power, but it just sounds like wishful thinking sounds like make-believe. Give us the faith to believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.